You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here today. And uh, we are finishing our series on Ephesians today, where we have been trying to fathom the height and breadth and width and length of the love of God in Jesus Christ, his grace, his power, his mercy, his his amazing truths that he has in this uh, letter. We're taking it one chapter at a time. So we're in Ephesians 6 today. Uh, Next Sunday, then, we do something different. And next Sunday happens to be called Palm Sunday by much of the church. And we are going to be uh, doing a series called Breaking the Broken Mold, just this one Sunday, March 28th. And the point is this. Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem, broke the broken mold, and the broken mold was leadership. If you think about it, every king before him and every king after him, every ruler and leader was nothing like what he was. And in fact, the mold of what leadership looked like in his day and age was broken. And he comes in riding on a donkey into Jerusalem and shows us what true leadership is and what that means. And so we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday, which means it starts this week called the Week of Jesus' Passion. On that Friday night, we hope that you would join us online only, not in person, for a Good Friday service at 6.30 p.m. And then that Saturday, by the way, we don't have a slide for this, but it's the egg hunt, and I do need just a few more people to help out as we hand out and invite people from Estero Community Park to our Easter Sunday on Easter morning, um, April 4th. And we hope that you join us for Easter celebration as well. Where, what do you think we're going to talk about, Ashley? Maybe the resurrection? Yeah, probably, as well as what that all means. So you've gotten one of those cards. We'd love for you to invite other people to that. But today we're going to conclude our series with um, this fathoming God's power in your life and what that means. So in Ephesians chapter 6, we're reading these verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now, this passage in most places in this world the Christians fully understand it. They get it. They understand what's going on here. They understand that there is spiritual forces in this world, both good and evil, and that we're a part of it. We in the West, specifically here in the United States, as well as probably Europe, our modernism has so reduced the world to digits and gigabytes of data, chemical processes, biological symbols, physical laws, our hormones. We think there's nothing beyond what we can taste, touch, see, or smell, or prove by science. But not so elsewhere in this world. And though the the Bible will say that the material world is truly real, the Bible also asserts you cannot reduce your life to just the things that you can 
observe in this material world. There's much more to you than you being a bag of atoms and chemicals put together. There is so much more. There's so much more to love than what you could ever prove through some scientific experiment. There's so much more to truth than what you can verify by some empirical process. Okay? And here in Ephesians 6, we see that God has a power to make you stand in the, a cosmic power that goes beyond anything and is only revealed in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to try to fathom God's power to live in wisdom and to stand in the victory that Jesus has for us that may, um, that deals with this spiritual realm as well that you and I live in. So what we're learning from this passage, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13, are these three points. We're going to learn whom we fight, what we fight, and how we fight. Okay? Are you with me on this? Whom do we fight? Paul says it this way. It's that middle verse, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when Paul says this, he's not saying that flesh and blood are not involved in it. In fact, Paul himself had many human and physical um, opponents in his life. He had struggled against those who opposed his work to proclaim the gospel, those who beat him, those who imprisoned him. But he did not fight back the same way because he saw that there was something beyond the human being in front of him going on. Does that make sense? He saw that it wasn't this person only, but this person was just a tool at that time. So instead of saying not only we wrestle with those forms, but behind those forms, something else is going on, he says. Paul would assert then that all the wars that we see, the cruelty that we see, the violence, the greed, the strife, the racism, the crime, poverty, are not merely economic or political, or militaristic issues, okay? There's something more going on. Behind every conflict, there is more going on than you think. Now, haven't you noticed, though, okay? We've been going on a long time as a world. We haven't made that much progress to solve a lot of these issues, have we? You know, until you recognize that there is a dimension of evil that goes beyond the economic, the social, the philosophical, the political. We're never going to solve these problems. All the explanations we have in this world are falling short of that. So this is a man named Andrew Del Banco. He's a professor, professor of literature at Columbia University, and he's not a Christian. But he wrote a book back in 1995 called The Death of Satan. And in it, what he's really getting at is the fact that how we have become powerless to even identify this word evil in our world and how we can't even defend against it because we don't understand it. We've reduced everything down to things that we think we can comprehend, and evil just doesn't fit into the picture. He writes this, there's a gulf. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil 
and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. In other words, there's evil all around us, and we can identify it pretty easily. We see human trafficking. We see exploitation. We see racism. We see war. We see greed. We've even seen genocides that have been occurring. But we don't seem to have the language to cope with it. We don't know exactly what's all going on. We kind of reduce it to, well, like, you know, if everybody just got educated, that doesn't solve it. Some of the most educated people in this world have been some of the most evil, right? We need more clarity, he says. Del Banco says we must recover the old religious language and metaphors because he says we're not doing well without them. And we've seen that, I think, especially recently in this kind of us versus them polarity in our society where we, ident we have identity politics and we think we're really fighting against those people and that's all we're fighting against. And all of a sudden we find the evil out there. He writes, evil has returned as the blamable other who can always be counted on to spare us the exigencies of examining ourselves. So we think we're actually fighting against flesh and blood, and we think you're the evil, I'm not. That's not quite the case. And so th this last week, it was extremely tragic. In fact, Wicked itself, the killing of six Asian women and two others in Atlanta, and it was done by a church-going young man. Somehow he thought if he would get rid of them, that he would solve the problem inside here. It sure didn't work. I don't understand the thinking of that. He didn't solve his struggles. In fact, the evil was within himself. It wasn't in these women. It wasn't that they were causing it by any means. It's the fact that he tragically caused more evil by what he did than solving anything. He thought he was fighting against flesh and blood. Now, we have made some progress through science, of course, through medicine, through helping economic issues, through agricultural improvements. We have solved a lot of things in those ways. But tell me, has our technology actually made human beings more humane? Do you really think so? Boy, no. Have we become more compassionate? because we all have smartphones. Have we become smarter because of our smartphones? Are we less violent today than two, three generations back? Are we more just? Are we more equitable in how we treat each other? Because the real issues are not solved by those things. There's something else going on. You know, and we do want to try to solve some of those things. I, um, we have brought up uh, before a Mission Haiti, and uh, we are still a part of Mission Haiti. Mission Haiti is going to continue to go on, even though Helen Rowenfeld tragically died in February, um, the, the director of Mission Haiti. And in the discussions that we have, we talk about economic issues in Haiti. We talk about the political issues and the turmoil. We talk about all sorts, but there's something more going on, the spiritual issues that are going on there as well. And so trying to get the kids educated, trying to partner with people to build them up, uh, trying to improve their societies and their small communities, trying to bless them in many ways is great, but there's more going on than that. We need to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives to make the real difference, the eternal difference, and that's what we're going to do. There is a spiritual battle going on all around the world.
And we need to be aware of that and not reduce everything to some simple solvable issue that human beings can handle. Now, I'm not recommending this. I happened to watch part of, recently, um, the movie uh, Silence of the Lambs. Anybody watch that one? Now, maybe the book is better. I don't know. I'm not saying please go out and watch it because it's pretty. Yeah, but this is what's interesting in the movie. I think uh, it's, uh, this is what's interesting in the novel is it touches on this area of evil. And it touches on the fact that we've tried to reduce it or trying to make it kind of like, well, it's just because he was deprived, therefore he's depraved. In fact, the first time Officer Starling meets uh, Hannibal Lecter, and boy, let me tell you, it's hard not to think of Anthony Hopkins every time, right? <laughs> she says under her breath, she says under her breath, whatever happened to him to make him so twisted? And he overhears it. And this is how he responds, and I think this is very telling, and why we, can't, we struggle with things. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Isn't that amazing? Our culture wants to say, you know, our violence, our racism is really just a lack of education. And if you just educate people well, you know, those things occur in primitive societies, in uncultured societies. But when we get that and we come to this level of education, then all of a sudden we'll be beyond that. And yet the 20th century saw among the most educated, civilized country in the world the greatest genocide, the Holocaust. It didn't occur among the uneducated or the ones that didn't have intelligence or the ones that, it occurred among the most. Do you understand that? That tells you something more is going on. We've tried and tried to prove evil is easily solved through reductionist agendas, economics, education, politics, that it's just a natural cause but there's something more going on. You know, Marxism claimed um, the reason society's got all these problems is uh, the power is in the wrong hands. We put it in the hands of the proletariat, and, they'll ha and what we found is the proletariat are just as vicious and mean as everybody else, <laughs> and the violence didn't go away. Others have asserted the religion is the real problem in this world. It's caused the majority of, you know, wars, and therefore if we just remove religion and have a... A, uh, irreligious society, and then we've had Leninism and Stalinist Russia with the gulags and the cultural revolution in China and the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, and all of these were anti-religion movements, and we find out the evil is even deeper. It's not about religion. It's not about education. It's not about uh, economics. It's something else that is also going on. We cannot account by all our standards that we have been using in our modern Western world, what evil is there. But the Bible doesn't have a problem with it. It understands in a much more nuanced and a more full and robust way 
a comprehensive way what's been going on in this world almost since the beginning. The narrative of the Bible says evil came from two created beings, from angels, spiritual, supernatural beings, immaterial beings, and human beings created in God's image, that the supernatural spiritual beings, these angels, turned away from God in their own free will so that they defy God at every turn, some of them, and tempting human beings to do the same. Now, sin is wrapped up in our own lives, in our hearts. I can't just remove it. It's not just a natural cause. Education doesn't get it away. Mindfulness will not change it. Every technique and method I try to get rid of this will not do. There's something more going on. A supernatural, a spiritual solution has to be found to this problem. So Christianity says you can't reduce the problems we have simply to psychology or sociology. There's more. There is an innate egotism and defiance of God, a self-will that blinds us to ourselves at the heart of human beings. These factors cause the problems. We wrestle, as Paul says, not only in flesh and blood. Flesh and blood's not going to solve it. There are demons and the devil, and you need to see that. And Paul says he calls them in such ways rulers, authorities, principalities, powers, this present darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, all to accentuate the fact that this is a struggle you can't handle on your own. That's whom we fight. Now, how do we fight it? Oh, well, what do we fight first? Let's get the points. Paul says it this way in the first verse, Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes there is the word methodia, where we get the word method in English as a transliteration of the Greek word. But it also means basically trickery, uh, strategies, you know, methods the devil uses, schemes, different ways he gets at you. And I think the best way to understand what are these schemes that he uses against you and me is to look at two words that the Bible talks about this uh, personal evil force that exists in this, uh, in this creation. And the first one is that word devil, which is diabolos in Greek. Okay? And that word itself means a slanderer, a liar, a deceiver. So, and Jesus himself said the devil is the father of lies. Basically, that's his tool. That's what he does. He lies. And he uses half-truths so effectively to lie. One of the... Um, there is a man named Thomas Brooks. He was a Puritan author that wrote a whole book with, I don't know, you know almost 100 different ways that the devil uses different lies to try to get us. I'm just going to share a few of them to show you what these schemes look like, these methods look like that he uses. The first one he calls, he shows you the bait and hides the hook, um, which any good fisherman here know that you try to hide the hook and have the bait there, but have it so that it's impossible to get, get the bait without the hook. And that's kind of a devil's technique there, is what he does is he shows you the short-term, wonderful, uh, joyful part of it and says, wow, short-term pleasure. He hides the long-term consequences. 
And he doesn't show you the illegitimate way that you're trying to get it instead of asking God to get who gives freely every good joy or uh, our situation. So he hides a long-term... Another method, he says, is rationalizing sin as a virtue. And what he means by that is saying, well, you know, I'm not really greedy. I'm just thrifty. Or I'm not nosy. I'm concerned. Or the best one I like is, I'm not gossiping. I'm just sharing you prayer concerns. You know about Mabel and what she was thinking and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Please pray for her. And it's gossip. But we're always hiding that and rationalizing our behaviors that way. A third way um, Brooks talks about is how he has you focus on your suffering, on how hard your life is, how difficult it is. And this especially has come prominent, and you've probably seen it hundreds of times, with pastors as well. This is the scary one for me. Pastors as well as other leaders um, in business. How hardworking, you know, focused individuals, how they will break down and have an affair. Have you ever wondered why in the world do people in high power and positions do this? It's because they are talking to themselves and saying, you know how hard this is to be a leader in this industry. You know, I have sacrificed and given, and I've worked, 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 worked. And then all of a sudden, they feel entitled to have whatever they want. Sad. Okay? Uh, Timothy Keller shares another one, by the way. He says it's how he, uh, the devil tries to get you to compare one vice in your life with a virtue and kind of balance them out. This is kind of what uh, mafia hitmen do. I love my mother. Yeah, I kill people, but I love my family. <laughs> it's how, it's like, well, I'm making up. It's like, isn't that interesting? So the devil lies. He deceives. He minimizes the problems. He maximizes the, the benefits. He distorts. He gives false alternatives to you. He does anything to have you fall into whatever temptation but the only power he has is to distort the truth. He doesn't have a power to actually make you do anything. But then when I do fall, and fall I do, he's got a second way. And it comes from the second word that we use of him, Satan, Satanas in the Greek. He accuses. That's what the word means. After he has tempted you and deceived you, then he comes back and she said, I can't believe you did that. How terrible. You're worthless. You're terrible. You're no good. How could you ever think after you did that, you will ever be forgiven? Accuse, accusation, accusation. It's amazing. He'll use the law of God, the truth of God, to accuse you of things before God and keep you focused on yourself. In temptation, the devil is essentially trying to inflate your ego so that you start to think you're entitled to do things you really shouldn't. And in accusations, the devil deflates your egos so that you hate yourself and then you end up doing things destructive that you shouldn't. Martin Luther talked about this. He said that there are two equal and opposite errors that people fall into. One is misbelief, and the other is 
un, uh, despair or unbelief. Misbelief is when you think, oh, yes, I can handle this. It's like reducing everything just to the things that I can handle. I'm in charge. I can do this. And not realizing the spiritual dimension that's also in this world that you and I are not the captains of our own fate and uh, the masters of our own soul. I think I messed that quote up, but um, the, you get the idea. We're not in charge, but we think we are. That's a misbelief. And then we go off and do all, oh, no, it's all, I can do whatever I want. We've got a whole society filled with misbelief today. And then the other opposite one that he yo-yos you back and forth between is the he accuses you and makes you despair, brings you to the point where, oh, I can't believe I did it again. I can't believe how terrible I am. I am just no good, and I can't. And each time you move back and forth between misbelief and despair or unbelief, and every way he can, he's keeping you from not being able to see the cross of Jesus Christ, but rather yourself. Both are self-centeredness. One, you're down on yourself. The other, you are overinflated. That's the methods of the devil. Lies and accusations, one form or another. So how in the world do we fight them? And that's our third point. Paul says simply, Ephesians 6.13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Take up the whole armor of God. Now, Wednesday nights, um, we have started one, one session John Hennahan and I did together on this idea of armor of God. We're going to keep doing them Wednesday nights here and there. I'm throwing in a few of the best of Helen uh, videos who passed away because she was such a good teacher. And I get a lot more out of it the second time realizing that she is now in glory. And seeing how she talks about her faith, it's just amazing. So, But we are doing the armor of God for probably the next couple of months as we go through different parts of that armor and talking about it. But one thing that we've already learned, I think John and I learned in this, is that the armor that Paul is talking about, he's not just talking about it in this passage, but we see Old Testament references to the fact of what characteristics the Messiah himself would have in the book of Isaiah. And then basically in the New Testament, Paul, when he's talking about armor, is not talking about physical armor and fighting, but he's talking about the character of Jesus Christ himself. He says this in Romans 13. He says, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So notice it's not, and then right after that, a verse later, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and provide no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So the gospel is this, that how you fight the schemes of the devil is to receive Jesus Christ fully for you, that he clothes you, he covers you, how he fought, how he understood his whole character, his righteousness, his mercy, his compassion, his mind, everything about him is now yours. And you stand in that. I don't know if you realize this. If you um, read the Gospel of Mark, it's the shortest of the four Gospels. From the beginning to the end, it's really Jesus at spiritual warfare. It's Jesus at spiritual warfare. It starts out pretty quick and keeps moving. And all along the way, you see 
Jesus battling the powers of evil in this world in a variety of ways. The temptation of Jesus starts it off. But this is what's fascinating. The Gospel of Mark, it's like two verses. And the fascinating thing is the devil never is said to have left Jesus. In fact, you see the temptations continue through the entire Gospel when he's healing others, when he's casting out demons, when he's feeding people, when he's bringing forgiveness, he is actually at spiritual warfare. If you want to know what spiritual warfare looks like, look at the life of Jesus and how he loved, how he spoke truth, how he taught, how he served, how he lived. And you then are a spiritual warrior following in his steps. The temptation in the wilderness just begins it. And it comes to a culmination in Mark chapter 8. For in Mark chapter 8, Jesus finally asks, after you've seen everything that I've been doing, he takes his disciples alone to himself and says, who do you say I am? And Peter finally says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Peter says, you're right. And this is what it means. And so Mark chapter 8, 31 to 33 says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Do you realize what's going on here? Peter, his own disciple, religious, wanting to protect Jesus from the cross and his own sacrificial death, is actually not in league with God and God's will, but with the powers of evil in this world. The devil tried to do anything, starting at this point, you can read it through the rest of the gospel, to get Jesus away from his cross. Anything. The devil doesn't mind a political messiah, a militaristic messiah, one who would use the powers of this world to fight with flesh and blood, to order other people around, to push his way around. That would be fantastic because it would just be more of the same that the world has been doing. He cannot stand what Jesus is doing, sacrificially giving up his life for the sake of others. Love is the one thing the devil hates more than anything else. And even at the cross itself, when Jesus is upon the cross, the devil is still trying to get Jesus off of that cross and away from it. You'll notice this in the Gospel of Mark more than anywhere else. And it's through the people and what they say. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild and save yourself. Come off the cross. Isn't that interesting? And then even the chief priests, the religious people, said much the same thing. They said, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we might believe in him. The temptation of Jesus, the real temptation of Jesus, is to give up the way of sacrificial love and to go the way of power like the world does. And Jesus would stay on that cross for your sake. Because he knew that only through sacrificing his own life for you. It's the only way he could rid this world of evil without destroying you and me. And that's our victory. That's the victory of Jesus Christ. We see it in the resurrection. And therefore, all Paul says is, you and I, all we have to do is to stand. Stand firm. 
We don't have to fight. We don't have to advance. We don't have to claim territory. We just stand in the victory that Jesus Christ has already given us. The victory is ours. And at all costs, the one thing the devil wants to do to you more than any other is to take your eyes off that cross and to focus it on yourself or on the world or on anything else. He tempts you to find outside of the cross, outside of Jesus Christ, outside of his sacrificial death, that you find your significance, your power, your pleasure somewhere else in some other form than in the beauty of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, his gift of grace to you. He deceives us so that we think somehow that we're going to have something more, something better outside of Jesus. And then when we do fall into it, then he accuses us. He'll even throw the Ten Commandments at you. He'll throw God's law at you. He'll do anything to get you not to look at the cross, even become a religious and moral person so that you don't focus on Jesus, but you focus on yourself and your actions, and you either despair or misbelieve or some form. And the one thing you can do and I can do is this. We can stand when we are tempted in Jesus Christ himself and the victory that we have. And we can look at the devil and say, look at the cross, devil. That's your undoing. You don't win. All your lies unravel at the foot of the cross. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Look at the cross, devil. All the accusations you throw at me, guess where they end up? On Jesus. He took them. Tell him what you want to think about me. I don't care what you say about me. That's where they belong. Because he took them. He took them away from me and placed them on himself. Charge that all to his account. That's what the cross is about. I am free. Your words mean nothing. Jesus gets his final word over my life. That's fathoming God's power. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of God's grace. So that's whom we fight, not flesh and blood. What we fight, the lies and the accusations. How we fight, by standing in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, this has been a great day in so many ways. You have so much for us here in Ephesians 6. We pray that we keep on learning on Wednesday nights more and more about that, Lord, and that you keep on teaching us again and again that the spiritual forces in this world are not in charge of our lives, but you are, Holy Spirit. You are, Lord Jesus, you are our righteousness. You are our armor of light. You and everything that you've done, you graciously give us. Help us to focus on you, your cross, your resurrection, Lord Jesus. And that we live and stand firm in that. That we live into your character, Lord. That we see the beauty, the victory that we have. Lord God, right now there are people who are struggling in our church, physically, medically. And we lift them up to you this day. We think, Lord of uh, Chris Rodriguez, who is hospitalized again. We think of Evelyn, who is home, still recovering from her surgery. We pray your healing upon them and that your cross would be before them, your compassion, your grace, and your truth. We ask that you would help us to come alongside of them, to lift them up, and to be, encourage them in the faith. We lift up to you as well, Chris, the grandson of the Griskies, Lord, who is undergoing uh, radiation treatments for a brain tumor 
uh, in the near future, Lord. At such a young age, Lord, what he is facing, we pray that he turns to you and sees your goodness and your truth for his life and that you heal him and use these treatments for your glory. We lift up to you, O Lord, Rachel out in California and Kai, her son, both with cancer. We pray for your healing upon them, Lord, that you work through every treatment and beyond because we know you can do that all for your glory. We lift up to you, O Lord, our Easter celebrations that are coming up in just a couple weeks, that you would fill this place with your joy and that many people after a very difficult year would be able to see your goodness and your truth beyond the fears of death and all sorts of other things, Lord, that they see the real truth in you, Lord Jesus, and that you would use us at Thrive as part of that, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, for the new members that we have and for uh, little Johnny as well, that you continue him growing as a disciple for many, many years, that we can come alongside of him and with him, Lord, grow into maturity, into the full stature of you, Lord Jesus. So bless us now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts as well to receive the Lord's Supper. You know that uh, we deceive ourselves so easily. We want to think that we are not sinful that the truth, though, would be not in us if we say that we have not sinned. But we confess our sins, Lord God, for you are both loving and just. You will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of Jesus Christ. So we place them all before you, Lord, and we receive instead the, the armor of light, Jesus himself, to cover over us. All this we pray in his name. Amen.